pageantry trumps incompetence in the lead-up to this month's on-again, off-again U.S.-North Korea meeting, and why Korea observers should appreciate summits and stability over fire and fury. Plus, controlling the calendar is controlling the process, how the Moon administration's heroic heavy lifting has kept the summit on track, and a risk-free template for how to be a North Korea pundit. All this and more as former U.S. diplomat, speechwriter, and commentator on U.S. foreign policy in Asia, Mintara Oba, joins me for episode 75 of The Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. If you want to help support this podcast financially, go to patreon.com for details on our crowdfunding campaign. This episode was recorded five hours before Trump posed with a giant envelope in the Oval Office. Hi, Mintaro. Hello. It's Friday, June 1st, and a high-ranking representative of the North Korean government was in New York this week to meet with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Who is Kim Young-chol? Kim Young-chol is a long-standing um, senior North Korean official. He's best known as former leader of North Korean intelligence and now has responsibilities for inter-Korean relations. He's been characterized as Kim Jong-un's right-hand man, and the fact that he's being sent to New York and now Washington to prepare for this summit is a sign that the North Koreans are very serious about this summit. So this is a a former head of North Korean intelligence meeting, a former head of the American CIA. So yeah, so what's the buzz like in Washington? Is the town super excited about what's happening this week? Well, I think every North Korea hand is fixated on Kim Young-chol's visit, and They've been following his meeting with Secretary Pompeo in New York, and now uh, President Trump is close to receiving him in Washington. So I think what we all want to know is um, whether President Trump is going to formally confirm the summit in any way, and whether he's going to come to a more realistic expectation about denuclearization being discussed in the summit. The talks that happened in New York this week have been described as substantive. And to your knowledge, what's been discussed? I don't know any more than what the State Department has briefed in public, that they had substantive discussions. Yeah, that's that's really about as far as I know. So it's, it's they've kept it vague uh, in the lead-up to the meeting with Trump. Okay. Uh, Kim Young-chul is one of the alleged masterminds behind the sinking of the Chonan, an alleged North Korean aggression that killed 46 South Korean Navy service members in 2010. And he's been on an American sanctions list, barring any travel to the United States, until that travel ban was waived this week for his visit. What message do you think North Korea was trying to send by putting someone like Kim Young-chul forward as its chief negotiator at this time? I don't think North Korea was attempting to send any sort of specific message by sending someone of Kim Young-chul's background. I think if you are someone who has become a close advisor of Kim Jong-un after all of the purges, that he's done and all of the power consolidation that he's done in his early years, then naturally you have to be tough and you may have done things that um, are unpleasant to American and Western audiences. So I think this is just the sort of caliber of person that North Korea has advising Kim Jong-un and I don't think that they were necessarily sending any specific signal by 
appointing him and sending him to the United States. So after the surprise announcement that the summit wouldn't be happening, which shocked everybody, uh, Robert, e, Robert E. Kelly, Busan National University professor of political science, uh, who's also internet famous for the live BBC interview where his adorable tiny daughter walked on camera in a hilarious way, uh, he published a short essay on Twitter last week. He's been a vocal critic of the summit, and he had this to say. So what happened to the summit? Number one, Trumpian incompetence. The common thread across the failures of the North Korea summit, Obamacare repeal, the wall, infrastructure, etc., is Trump's laziness and disinterest in the grunt work required by his job. Presidenting is hard, and Trump has neither the focus, attention span, critical faculties, or work ethic to do it well. Think LBJ, constantly on the phone working the bureaucracy, Congress, U.S. allies, etc. Trump doesn't do this. He's so checked out from his own presidency in policy terms that large initiatives which require sustained executive leadership fail. Secretary of State Pompeo's own commitment was not enough. POTUS himself needs to be involved. But Trump got more hung up on the pageantry and the Nobel Peace Prize hype. So now that it looks like the summit might be back on, what do you make here of Kelly's perspective regarding this notion of Trumpian incompetence? Well, I absolutely share the view that President Trump is a totally incompetent leader um, and that he sort of stumbled his way toward tactical opportunity with this summit. That being said, I wouldn't be so quick to denigrate President Trump's focus on pageantry. I think that's what gives him a real stake in the summit. And his lack of experience and lack of ideological commitment give him a certain flexibility with the North Koreans that others who are more experienced, like National Security Advisor John Bolton, wouldn't have. So it's a double-edged sword. I think the Trumpian incompetence uh, can make for some bad outcomes, but it can also open up a lot more that's not possible with other types of leaders. Yeah, and the, the reality television presidency that that could be the perfect time to finally achieve a formal peace on the Korean Peninsula would be exceptional. These are obviously completely insane times that we're living through. Uh, Kelly also weighed in on uh, White House National Security Advisor John Bolton's provocative suggestion, damaging probably, that the United States might pursue the Libya model in its negotiations with North Korea. And Kelly says... We offered them almost nothing, demanding complete, verifiable, and irreversible dismantlement up front for vague future promises of something that was never going to work. That's the Libya model, which was a terrible negotiating tactic as that deal ended really badly for the Gaddafi government and personally for Gaddafi himself. Trump's great at belligerence and threats, but not at the giving and getting of diplomacy. Trump's triumphalism, peaking within the preposterous notion that he should win a Nobel Peace Prize, likely told the North Koreans that Trump wanted to dictate surrender terms rather than negotiate. And this is why the whole thing should have started at the bottom, with professional diplomats slowly hammering out a deal through concession and counter-concession, building up toward an eventual summit, which will hopefully happen now. So I want to examine the Libya model for a moment. Why was that such a bad deal for Gaddafi? Well, I think most people would say he ended up dying, um, you know, and having the United States invade his country. Leading to years of civil war and a, and a failed state. Right. You know, but I think 
it's important to understand that Libya's circumstances were vastly different from North Korea's in so many different ways. Its nuclear weapons program was nowhere near the level of advancement that North Korea's was. It's not in a volatile region with many massively powerful nuclear-armed powers right in its vicinity who have a stake in its future. So to suggest that the Libya example has any applicability to North Korea is a real intellectual failure, I think. Kelly laments this lack of professional diplomats slowly hammering out a deal. But the Trump regime has been remarkably hostile not only to the idea of diplomacy and diplomatic process, but even to the basic principle of staffing an American diplomatic corps. And from what I've read, there are dozens, hundreds of diplomatic posts around the world that remain empty more than a year into Trump's tenure, and even in Seoul, where there's still no American ambassador. So, Mintaro, you've worked in the State Department. How significant of a problem is this lack of a global diplomatic staff for the United States, in your view? Well, if any president of the United States is serious about executing an effective foreign policy, they need career diplomats who have the expertise and the knowledge and the skill sets to be able to do that. You have to distinguish between foreign policy, which can be done at a political level, and diplomacy, which requires those sorts of skills. And it's very alarming that, you know, President Trump and his subordinates have not really prioritized the State Department as an institution and listened to the Council of career diplomats. Yeah, and how does a diminished diplomatic corps affect something as hugely complicated as disarmament negotiations with North Korea? Well, I think in this case, there are many talented people who are at the State Department who are handling this capably. So I wouldn't necessarily say that this is the key area where I'm concerned about the absence of career diplomats. Um, You have Mark Lambert, who's the Korea desk director. Um, who's a very, very capable diplomat. You have Sung Kim, who's now the U.S. ambassador to the Philippines, but he has negotiated directly with the North Koreans in the six-party talks uh, and has a wealth of experience on North Korea matters. Um, And you have plenty of working-level career diplomats who have experiences like that as well. So I do think that the expertise and the experience are there at the State Department if President Trump is willing to call on it, and I hope he does. James Kelly goes on to suggest that the agreement to hold a summit just happened too quickly. He says, the strategic and ideological divisions between the U.S. and North Korea are large. It was always heroic to suggest we could bridge them in just nine weeks, especially with Trump not bothering to put in the work. Historians will spend much time debating whether South Korea pushed this thing too fast onto someone woefully unready for the burden. And much of this sounds right to me. But if the summit does happen as planned on June 12th, what should we make of Kelly's assessment here? Well, you know, I like to say that I prefer summits and stability over fire and fury. And that that basically means that there's value to having a summit. There's value to having a diplomatic process merely for the fact that that reduces tensions and allows us the chance to get to understand our intentions better. And so, yeah, I don't think it was necessarily a mistake to agree to the summit. And it's not clear to me that President Trump would have been necessarily better prepared if it had happened later. 
I think the problems we're seeing with the summit have more to do with basic ideological misunderstandings on the part of the United States and an inflexible negotiating posture driven by hardliners. And those are things that wouldn't necessarily be resolved by postponing the summit or approaching it in a different format. Kelly finishes his Twitter essay with this. But ultimately, South Korean President Moon Jae-in deserves credit for teeing up a huge opportunity for Trump, a deal of a lifetime for a guy who says he's a consummate dealer. And Trump, whose deals mostly consisted of cons and frauds like Trump University, blew it. There'll be enough blame to go around. North Korea backsliding. South Korea over eagerness. But Trump will carry the lion's share because of his inability to buckle down and do the work. At minimum, controlling his staff to keep Bolton from sabotaging Pompeo in order to make this a success. So this seems like good analysis, although today we're seeing Pompeo in the ascendance and Bolton on his heels. Uh, but if the summit happens, is it thanks to President Deals or in spite of him? Or should we really be focusing on this amazing work that President Moon and his team have been doing to keep this thing on the rails? What do you think? Well, I think President Trump deserves credit for accepting the summit. But as Kelly correctly points out, that was a tactical opportunity created for him by South Korean President Moon's very active and pragmatic diplomacy. So I think more of the credit goes to, to President Moon for engineering the opportunities and putting the U.S. in a position to react to those opportunities uh, rather than President Trump sort of stumbling his way to success. Pivoting now to your own Twitter feed, you offered a risk-free template for how to be a North Korea pundit. And you had this to say. You say, number one, whatever event just occurred, note it's happened before. Number two, list previous failed agreements. Three, state that history tells us to be wary. And four, do not under any circumstance offer any solutions. Finally, five, bonus, say China is key. How do you see the discourse over North Korea policy in American media uh, over the last weeks and months? Well, you know, I wrote that out of frustration with some basic fallacies and basic types of commentators I see in the North Korea policy community. And because there's a, a lot of uncertainty on this topic of North Korea, coupled with the fact that it's sort of a sexy topic that people really want to know more about it, people are attracted to becoming commentators on this topic, but they're also unwilling to, to take risks in their analysis. Um, and they end up making a career out of skepticism, basically. And so I was really objecting to that sort of superficial commentary that I see a lot of in the North Korea policy community. Uh, in your own analysis, you've written that the two Koreas are keeping control of the calendar and therefore keeping control of the process. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, it's very underrated, actually, this control of the calendar that the South Koreans in particular have established. I think. When you think about what the chessboard is in diplomacy, you think about territory, you think about broader military or economic power. But at a tactical level, the chessboard is really the calendar. It's about what events happen and when and how they proceed or succeed 
other events because events and meetings are really what set expectations in diplomacy. And that's a tactical fact that President Moon in particular has really understood. And so it started with his use of the Olympics as a way to engage with North Korea. And it continued with um, the inter-Korean summit and the calendar of events that came out of the Panmunjom Declaration, which will basically leave us now with continued inter-Korean meetings and events throughout the summer and potentially into the fall. And that will allow, you know, the North, North and South Koreans to sort of set the tone of the environment and force the United States and other major powers to react to them and not the other way around. And one thing that I think is not always clear from outside of Korea is just how much, uh, although it feels like an American issue, it really is a, largely a, an inter-Korean issue. And that's why I love seeing the two Koreas actually in dialogue. Uh, back to the North Korea policy community for a second. You put up a Twitter chart that I really liked, and it's a kind of left-to-right ideological axis describing the North Korea policy community, but you have an interesting Trump outlier category for both those who support and those who oppose engagement with North Korea. So in the North Korea policy community on Twitter, who are the sunshiners? I think the sunshiners are people who fundamentally believe in the possibility of progress through engagement with the North Koreans, and they take a rosier view of North Korean intentions. I think an AP reporter described it as thinking that the North Koreans have a heart of gold and they just need to be to be engaged and given opportunities to really bring that out. And I think that's that's a sort of part of the left-wing pro-engagement spectrum that's um, reflected in, you know, Kim Dae-jung and No Mu-hyun's approach in the past toward North Korea. Do you think they were really that naive, though, to think that the North were, you know, had a heart of gold? That seems remarkably uh, extreme. I think that characterizes a certain spectrum of the pro-engagement North Korea policy community. And I think that, you know, maybe Kim Dae-jung and No Mu-hyun were maybe more optimistic or more naive than President Moon is today. I could, yeah, I could see that. And Moon himself is a much more pragmatic uh, uh, leader and engager with, with the whole issue of, of inter-Korean engagement. But back to the North Korea policy community, the pragmatists, who are they? Well, that is a very broad category. Um, and it basically encompasses people who believe that North Korea has very clear interests, people who recognize how serious North Korea is about its nuclear weapons program, people who understand that North Korea has a very savvy playbook and that, you know, it has done a lot of bad things, basically. And it couples that understanding that realistic understanding of intentions with the belief that we do need to make progress and we need to find common ground and that it is possible based on a pragmatic understanding of North Korean interests and U.S. interests and South Korean interests to find that common ground and make some sort of progress. And further along the spectrum, you have the hacks, which I believe is basically people who don't really know what they're talking about. And then furthest to the right is the conservatives, which is probably self-explanatory. But I noticed there was an absence of a sort of peace camp in your analysis. Like 
people who support engagement and any movement towards peace and negotiation simply because uh, war is unimaginable. Like we can't even think about that. It's not an option. And I guess that's part of the Sunshiner and part of the pragmatist camp. But uh, do you think that's where the rational pacifist element might fit into that axis? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And plenty of people have pointed out to me what they consider different uh, subsets or different categories. And um, the truth is, when you put people into buckets, it's it's going to be conceptually useful, but it's never going to be complete or comprehensive. Um, and so I really just try to give people a broad context of what the North Korea policy community looks like to me. Now, the rational pacifist element, in my view, um, is one of one of the camps that kind of falls under the pragmatist bucket. Um, I think that it is pragmatic to believe in engagement because it's important to avoid war, because it's important to reduce tensions. Uh, and as you said, that could that could also be framed in the sunshine camp, depending on on the assessment of North Korean intentions that accompanies that view. Your pinned tweet right now reads: When did the U.S. and China normalize ties? Your first thought might be 1972, the year of Nixon's visit. In fact, it was 1979, seven years later, after a long process including establishing liaison offices. The Nixon-Mao summit was the beginning, not the end. What lessons should we take from this? Well, there were really two points I wanted to make there. The first is that a top-down summit is not necessarily bad. Um, or unprecedented. Obviously, Richard Nixon's summit with Mao in 1972 involved a preparatory visit by Henry Kissinger to China, and there is a careful strategy and planning involved. But it really was the beginning and not the end. And especially with a state with whom we don't have normal relations, I think it can be useful to start with a top-down summit and provide a mandate for lower level diplomats and negotiators to build up the relationship based on common interests. Um, and the second point I I was trying to make there was that I think the Trump-Kim summit can be more successful if we frame it not as a one-off high-stakes negotiation, as the Trump administration seems to be doing for now, and more as the beginning of a longer-term diplomatic process. If we recognize that the summit can be considered a big success, even while a longer term diplomatic process continues for months or even years after this, I think that opens up much more possibility for the summit to be considered a success. So, Mintaro, what do you think? Are we going to see a Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump summit on June 12th? Well, the signs over the last few days suggest that both sides are very serious about the summit. So it seems more likely than not as of today that they'll have the summit. Uh, and I'm cautiously optimistic that they'll, they'll come to some agreement that will allow them to portray the summit as a success. Mintaro Oba is a former U.S. diplomat, speechwriter, and a commentator on U.S. foreign policy in Asia. He joined me from Washington. Mintaro, thanks for speaking with The Korea File. Thank you. My pleasure.
That's the Korea file for this month. Throw this podcast if you want at patreon.com forward slash the Korea file. You can follow Mintaro on Twitter at Mintaro Oba. I'm on there too at Andre Margulay. Find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a feature contributor at Korea FM and Korea Bridge. Find them and like them on Facebook. You'll find The Korea File there too with links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. Check back wherever you found this podcast in early July for a new episode. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>